0: Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play.
1: Greetings listeners, it's time for the January episode. I'm news editor Ezie Pearson and I'm joined on the podcast today by editor Chris Bramley. Hello. Coming up later today, we'll be telling you how you can see Orion in our Stargazing Tip of the Month. Uh, But first, we're going to take a moment to talk about our January issue, which just so happens to also be our 200th issue. Um, So we're all very proud that uh, we've been going for, is it 16 years? That's right. The magazine's been going for now.
0: Sky at Night magazine launched with the June issue 2005, way back 16 years ago. And yeah, what a time it's been, um, 200, 200 issues. Um, I'm very pleased that we've been able in the 200th issue to include a double-page spread uh, on which we have every single one of our covers right back to the very first issue, um, which is <laughs> just a mind-boggling sight um, uh, site personally speaking when you look back on it um seeing all those issues that we've we've created together mm. when did you join the magazine Ezzie?
1: i i joined funnily enough back on issue 100 um that, issue was 100. First, that, that was the issue that was going on sale when i started so for me it's been particularly poignant um Fantastic. For me it's, yes. my, it's my hundredth issue um that's
0: amazing yeah. which
1: is you know it's 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 great to have been able to sort of be on the forefront of all of these like uh observations and and scientific discoveries that's been happening. Because um, mm. one of the things that we did in the issue was we uh, had Chris Lintott, um, from who's one of the presenters of The at Night, uh, write about all of the scientific, uh, the biggest scientific discoveries that have happened over the, the 16 years that the magazine's been going. And some of them were really sort of, Either, the, the, these things that you feel have been around for longer than 16 years. Like, for instance, back when the magazine started, we barely knew of any exoplanets. Now mm, we know right. of thousands and thousands, and we're beginning to like get close views of them and, and understand what their climates are like and what they're made up of. Um, and so that was kind of, you know, a really interesting shift to see. The advances um, there
0: have been incredible, haven't they? Yeah,
1: Yeah. exactly. We've We've detected gravitational waves for the first time, in detectors that hadn't even been built.
0: Yes, yeah, a whole new it's a whole new um, chapter of, um, of of astronomy that isn't it? That's just started um, in, mm-hmm. in the in the past fifteen years. Absolutely incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, personally, I join. I I I um. You say issue to issue one hundred. Um. I I I've been on. On Sky at Night Magazine since issue one, um, not as editor. <laughs> I started out as as the um, production editor, the sub editor, on issue one. So I, I can remember quite clearly putting that very first issue together um, and um, working on all those all those issues. Um, I was I became the editor in issue seventy seven um, back in twenty twelve. And being able to see uh, all the covers just brought back um, some of the great things that we've covered um, since then and um, some of the great things outside the magazine that we've been able to do um as well um things like um the total eclipse event that we put on in march 2015 in bristol Um, there was a total there was a total it was a total eclipse in some parts of the world from the uk it was a it was a it was the largest partial eclipse um that we'll get to see for many many years um, and it really, it really was, I think it was probably about, um, 60 to 65% of the sun was covered by the, by the moon, um, it, from Bristol anyway. Um, and we had, we had about, we had hundreds of people turn up to the event in the morning. Uh, the sky was quite cloudy, but, um, it cleared, uh, just at the right time for us to see, uh, the, the, um, the eclipse. Uh, so that was fantastic. Um. The other thing we've done in the issue is we've got we've got in touch with some. Uh, we found out that some of our subscribers have been reading the magazine since issue issue one. Uh, an amazing number, actually, one hundred and twenty subscribers mm. have been reading the magazine since issue one, which is just fantastic. And, and I think it, 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 you know, we're so grateful to to all our readers um, for following us for that long. We talked to just five of them, and here it was so interesting to hear their you know, their insight into into the kind of astronomy they do, what they find interesting about the hobby, what keeps them going. And and it's just a really unique insight into, into what people what what gets people going about the hobby and, and about the science.
1: Yes, it's it's absolutely fantastic. And uh we're thankful to all our readers and uh hopefully some of our, our listeners are readers as well. And so if you want to read more about What's been going on in the uh, 200 issues of Sky at Night magazine, the discoveries that have been made, the observations that have happened. Be sure to pick up our 200th issue. However, there is another landmark occasion that will be happening in mid-December. And that's on the 22nd of December, the James Webb Telescope is finally due to launch.
0: Finally, yes, after many finally. years. Finally. This
1: is, uh, I say finally, because it was first supposed to launch back in 2007. That was its first launch date. Uh, it's its a bit behind.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, there have been delays, haven't there? Uh, well, but it's a massively it? complex um, instrument and mm-hmm. it's going to set the, set the standard for astronomical observations in a way that Hubble did. Um when it first launched. Mm-hmm.
1: And in fact, that's why the, the JWST, as it's also known, um was first envisioned. Uh it was it's meant to be a follow-up to the Hubble Space Telescope. But it's a very mm. different animal. Um, it's a uh infrared telescope. That means yes. it can look through the dust in the universe because um dust is everywhere and if you're looking visually you can't see through it but infrared can um, no and hoovers it's going in to, space yeah there's no <laughs> hoovers in space exactly <laughs> uh and it's got a six and a half meter mirror and there's a problem when you have a mirror that big which is that it won't fit in a rocket rockets are only about three and a half meters wide i think that's the mm. maximum width you can fit in there
0: we so, can't fit it in. They couldn't fit it in, could they?
1: No, they are having to fold the mirror up. It's been constructed out of 18 hexagonal plates, all of That's which right. are very gently curved to, to create the, the mirror shape that you need. Um, and they've, these are also coated in
0: gold. That's right. Yeah, they're gold-plated, It's very dramatic. It looks very dramatic, doesn't it? All these different segments are, are hexagonal too, so it looks a little bit like a kind of uh, honeycomb, doesn't it, from a beehive? It does.
1: It very much looks like a beehive uh, uh, or a honeycomb. And the reason why it's gold rather than the usual silver that you see is because gold reflects infrared light much more effectively and much better. Very good.
0: That gold... Is a very is a very thin micron th- thin pl- um, plating. Mm. The vast p- um, proportion, the backing of the of behind that gold plating is beryllium, which mm. is a very very rare metal, isn't it? And actually, I was doing some some um, reading up on beryllium. It's an absolute. It's an absolutely fascinating element in terms <laughs> of uh, the the particle physics. Asy, isn't it? I mean, mm. you, I did. I had no idea how it was. How it was. Uh, formed. Um, any, all, all elements heavier than, than iron, uh, all the elements are formed in stars, aren't they? Um, that yeah. thing, you know, in, fused, fused together from um, hydrogen and helium.
1: All the ones up to iron, anyway.
0: Uh, up to iron, but you can't get any heavier elements than that um, formed within a star. Um, every element in the periodic table heavier than iron is formed in a supernova, but not beryllium which is mm. which is i i just it just i just find it absolutely mind-boggling that it takes a supernova um to form these heavy elements and then and then some of these heavy elements are struck by cosmic rays <laughs> just randomly <laughs> struck by cosmic rays and then and then that that go on, that that um that reaction goes on and some of those some of those elements that are formed from these cosmic ray strikes um are, are uh I'll go on to create beryllium mm-hmm. which is which is just just mind boggling <laughs> the kind of chances of this happening um uh, throughout the universe over time um yeah. to create um to create a metal um it kind of explains why it's so rare i guess
1: yeah so it it is this incredibly rare metal but it's also it's also very light um it's number 4 on the periodic table um which means it's an incredibly lightweight metal which is great if you're trying to build your Uh, spacecraft out of it but it's also still strong it's got all of the other properties that you want to have if you're you're making a mirror and so that's why they they sought out this incredibly rare metal to make these 18 hexagons out of
0: that's right that's right yeah um and it's going to have Quite a lot of um, instruments on board, isn't it, Ezzie?
1: There are four main instruments. Uh, There's a near-infrared camera, a near-infrared spectrometer, a mid-infrared instrument, as it's called, or MIRI, and a near-infrared imager and what's called a slitless spectrograph. So a spectrograph gets uh, in the light from distant stars or distant objects uh, and then sort of splits it up, and that allows you to... When, you, when you've got that sort of spectrum, you can see all of the different um, what's called spectral lines. So these are when you've got a certain element in a star, it glows with a certain color of light and you can pick out that color of light and be able to tell that element is in a star. And so you can begin to pick out what, you know, I say star, it could be an exoplanet. It could be something around um, a distant planet. Uh, we'll get more into what J.D. is actually going to be looking at later. Um, but it's it's got this entire suite of instruments that are going to be able to just really break apart what these planets, uh, what these cosmic objects are like um, and, and look at things that we just haven't had the capability to do before. Because this is the first big, really, we have had infrared telescopes before, but it's hard to put one on Earth because Earth's atmosphere just soaks up all of the infrared. And all you end up seeing is the Earth's atmosphere. So you need to put it above the Earth's atmosphere. Um, And there has been various telescopes. They've been much smaller because they haven't had this massive 6.5-metre mirror. Um, And they've also tended to be very focused on a a specific part of the spectrum, looking at a specific thing. Um, So things like Herschel and Spitzer, things like that. but we're very sort of focused on a, on a narrow range of things to be able to do whereas the whole point of the jwst is it's just going to be this kind of broad approach looking at all of these different things and just basically people can yeah. can come up with whatever observation they want to do and apply for time and that I say they'll get it, but you know it's an incredibly
0: in-demand instrument. I mean, the time the time is 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 precious on on JWST, isn't it? Um, even mm-hmm. more so than Hubble. When you look at how broad the the part of the spectrum is that um, the Webb telescope will be able to see, it's it's hugely wide. It it covers over half of the of the of the spectrum um, towards the infrared end, which are the longer wavelengths of of light. Um, of course, one of the things that Helps the Webb Telescope to be able to take such good observations and be able to see so much of the infrared part of the spectrum is the fact that it's going to be um, a, just a, a huge distance from Earth. Um, Hubble orbited orbited the Earth five hundred and seventy kilometers above the surface. The Webb Telescope is 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 it's, it's not even going to be orbiting the Earth. Um, it's it's launching on this huge Ariane Five rocket up from French Guiana, from Spaceport Europe, um, ESA's ESA Spaceport in French Guiana, which is in South America. It's going to travel one and a half million kilometers away into deep space, and there it's going to be. Um, at a, it's going to travel to a point in space. Known as the Earth-Sun Lagrange point L2. Now there are four of these Lagrange points around around Earth, um, and at these Lagrange points, the gravitational forces of the Sun and Earth exactly balance the centrifugal force acting to carry objects further out into space. So in fact, so in effect, objects at these Lagrange points hover in a kind of stationary in a stationary position in relation to the sun and earth without having to expend much fuel now the there are four i said there are four of these there one is one is two of them are on the orbital path of earth um ahead of and behind uh the planet our planet on its orbital path one is in between the sun and the earth and the four, the the second one, L two, where JW, JWST is going, is on the far side of Earth from the Sun, um, and and there, um, it's going to be far far away from all the all the light from the Earth, the Sun, and the Moon, which will keep instruments cool. And as well, the other thing that JWST has built into it um, is this huge sun shield, um, which is going to block even more of the light from the Earth, Sun and moon and keep its instruments incredibly cool which is vital for um, taking infrared observations I mean it, it just it's just it's just a different beast to Hubble it really is um, you know as well as orbiting at a vastly greater distance from from our planet it's going it's got this 21 meter wide um, sun shield about the size of a tennis court if you can picture that in your mind
1: absolutely huge um,
0: it's huge. Uh, whereas Hubble was thirteen meters in length, like about the, you know about the size of a of a coach or or a small bus. We've already talked about the mirror. Um, the mirror is going to be six six and a half meters in diameter, whereas Hubble's mirror was two and a half two point four meters in diameter, and and so that that gives um, the Webb telescope over six times the collecting area of the Hubble mirror, um, which is going to mean. Um, it collects more light and it 's going to be it 's going to be um, giving astronomers much greater resolution in terms of the observa- observations that it can take it 's going to be able to see much finer detail um, one interesting thing that i um uh, that I noticed was the difference in mass between the two instruments um mm-hmm. do do you did you, do you know anything about that, Ezzie? Which, which do you think is the heavier that one? That
1: is one of the, the kind of measurements I haven't actually looked at.
0: Mm. It's, it's fascinating because um, I, was, I was expecting, you know, it's a much, in terms of its size, it's a much bigger instrument. In actual fact, the Webb telescope is, is half the mass of the Hubble Space Telescope. That Hubble Space is... Telescope comes in at 12 tonnes. Wow. The Webb telescope weighs six and a half tonnes. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have it to get 30, 30, have it get 30, have it get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? so Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available
0: for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE.
1: I mean, I, I that's what you get for making your, your plates out of beryllium.
0: <laughs> that's what you get. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right.
1: But I don't know if any of our listeners at home have ever seen uh, pictures. There's on the NASA website, they have lots of them where you can see sort of this, this absolutely enormous telescope next to the people who are working on it. And it gives you this kind of sense mm. of scale of just how big it is. But it, it's, you know as you said, you know, it's the size of a tennis court with really this massive is, yeah. thing sticking yeah. up the side of like, as, and as high as a house. <laughs>
0: That's right. This giant thing. And it's it's going to be launching on um, December the 22nd, isn't it? So, yes. um, you know, Hopefully. We, we, we do wish it well.
1: <laughs> Hopefully we'll be launching on December the 22nd because it has had a bit of a A past and a bit of a history on the way Mm. to the launch pad. As I said, uh, it began development back in 1996, um, meant to be Mm. a successor to Hubble, um, but a complementary one. And Mm -hmm. initially, its forecast was was forecast to cost around about 500 million dollars. I think Mm. at the end tally, it's more like 10 billion. So goodness. That's a that's a bit of an increase in cost there. <laughs> that, is, um, that is
0: quite that's quite an increase, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, uh,
1: uh, but it was originally supposed to launch in two thousand and seven, uh, but it had a major redesign in two thousand and five. Um, at which point, it was the 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 launch date was pushed way back. Um, it was going to be much more capable of what it could do um, and much more advanced, uh, but. Uh, so basically, it had been suffering from scope creep um, up until that point where basically everybody said, it's like, oh, why why don't we put this on? Why don't we make it do this? And in 2005, they sat down and said, OK, let's see what we can actually put on and go with that. Uh, the main construction finally finished uh, in 2016. Um, at which point it was going through testing and this is where things really started going wrong because in March 2018 they were practicing deploying this absolutely massive stun shield Um, but there's one very small problem with a sun shield that is the size of a tennis court but has the thickness of 0.05 millimetres It's incredibly thin and there's five of these sheets and they all have to go out perfectly. And during this test deployment, it tore and there was no way to kind of repair this other than sort of completely taking that layer off and putting it back on again. So that took another couple of years and the launch date was suspended back to again. Um, And then in March 2020, the pandemic happened. Um, and they had to push back the launch date again uh, to the 31st of October because basically NASA decided that they really needed to co- sort of concentrate their resources that they had um, on things that were needed to go at a certain time. So, for instance, they were working on the Perseverance rover that had to be ready by, oh, when did that launch? Uh, in August, uh, because otherwise it was going to miss its launch window, whereas JWST can launch pretty much at any time.
0: It can launch at um, any time. I mean, it's not critical, is it? Because it's not having to um, yeah. kind of tie in with the orbital paths of different planets, and and it's quite no. the scheduling. Yeah. I talk about kind of scheduling trains, scheduling yeah. stuff in terms of orbital dynamics and the sit and the motion of the planets is a is an order of magnitude more tricky than um, national rail.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So then the the uh, the launch got pushed back to the thirty first of October. Then in August, all the, all the Ariane 5 rockets, which is what uh, the JWST will be flying on, were grounded because there was an issue with their, their payload fairings. So that's basically the kind of the, the panels that go around your, your instrument to protect it during launch. Um, so it got pushed back three months to the 18th of December. And then a couple of weeks ago for us, uh, about a month when this comes out, um, In late November, uh, something called a clamp band released whilst they were mounting this telescope on top of the rocket um, and shook the entire telescope. And uh, it must have been so, you know, you've got this half billion telescope. Um, 10 billion dollar telescope that Mm -hmm. people have been waiting (laughs) decades for so people have been going on and on about and making jokes about (laughs) how delayed it is and then you just suddenly see the entire thing go (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
0: this one little uh, when you say clamp band i'm imagining a kind of rubber band just pinging off it and flying off into into the corner of some clean room
1: i've been i've been trying to discover what a clamp band actually is and i think that is basically what happened but Fortunately, you know the telescope was going to suffer much worse shaking during launch, so it was they, they put in an extra couple of delay, couple of days delay, just to you know check everything thoroughly and make sure everything was okay. And finally, yeah. on the twenty second of December, that is when it is due to launch.
0: Finally, well, it's just, I think it's just as well that they're doing all these checks ahead of time and taking mm. and ta- and putting in these putting putting in these slight delays because, of course. Being that far away, one and a half million kilometers out in space, there's, you know, you, we can't service it um, in the same way that Hubble was able to be serviced Absolutely. by um, teams of astronauts. Mm-hmm. It's going to be out there. It's going to. It it has to. You know, there is no leeway for repair once it's out there. So no. we need. You know, all the, all the kind of the the global consortium of of space agencies who are. Who are who are creating this this amazing mission? They all they are all invested, and in they all want to make sure that it's absolutely um, going to work when once it once it launches to space. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, absolutely, and unfortunately, one of the because you mentioned Hubble again, then and one of the things that they were hoping they'd be able to do was. Mm have JWST and Hubble making observations at the same time of the same thing so you could they could work together Um, yes and because of all of these delays unfortunately now Hubble is not doing very well it's constantly going into safe mode at the moment sort of every couple of months I, I get a report in sort of saying Hubble's gone back into safe mode and most of the time they can you know flick a couple of switches, turn it off and on again, and it works, and it's fine.
0: <laughs> they can do some software updates, can't they, on, the, yeah. on this thing and, and try and reboot their operating systems.
1: There's no space shuttle anymore, so they can't go and, mm. and, and service it. So hopefully they'll be able to get, you know, at least a couple of months out of the two of them working together. I think they're hoping for a couple of years, but we'll have to see if that happens. Um, mm, mm. But it is it is an exciting time because even by itself, uh, the JWST, as we said, is a huge like an incredible instrument it's going to be able to observe all over the cosmos from our own solar system backyard right the way mm. out to you know the earliest solar the earliest objects that are out there so the uh, what's called the cycle 1 observations have already been assigned the first 6000 hours of JWST time has already been assigned. Uh, There are small programs, which only are are less than 25 hours to do, medium projects, which are 25 to 75, and large projects, which are 75 hours long. Um, And and there's there's dozens of these that have already been assigned, uh, studying exoplanets um, and their disks around them. So this is going to be one of the big things that that the JWST G- is going to be really good at, because it can can look through the dust. It looks in the infrared. It can see these hot young systems, seeing them as they grow and really begin to sort of pick apart um, what's called the protoplanetary disks. So this is the disk yeah. of dust and debris that's around planets, um, and and mm. pick out possibly even you know growing planets, perhaps even some growing moons, um, which is that's something that we're beginning to hear about
0: mm. um, in mm. these
1: disks of dust. Uh, Equally, Mm. it'll be looking at really early galaxies, seeing how these grow. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, they tend to be quite dusty, so being able to 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 see in that part of the spectrum will really helping this. Yeah,
0: yes. Talking talking about the first galaxies, we're talking about looking back in time to a very to very early um, period of the universe's history. Um, The first galaxies formed around three hundred million years after the Big Bang, uh, and Hubble was able to see. The kind of the kind of later stages of that of that period in the universe's history, Um, JWST will be able to see much further back into that period, and in fact, it will be able to see beyond that, further back into time again, back to when the first stars were being formed, and that that really is something something incredible um, Mm. to be able to see the very first generation, the very first population. Of stars and how they were formed and it's going to be fascinating to see how they're different from um, stars later stars that are formed these days
1: yeah it's really looking into a lot of this kind of like very early very distant galaxies because again it can look through the dust that fills the universe and get a much clearer picture of what's going on um so looking at things like the uh the intergalactic medium uh which is the the stuff mm-hmm. between galaxies is <laughs> sort of vague like not even clouds just this sort of wash of stuff
0: the very tenuous um almost it's it's almost a vacuum isn't it i mean there's probably about um one atom or one particle of of matter you know in a huge huge a volume of, of space, isn't there? We're talking in the interplanetary medium. Um, but, yes, yeah, fascinating that it's going to be able to characterise that, characterise that a little bit more. But why, what's it going to see in the solar system, then, a bit closer to Earth?
1: So this is actually see, really very interesting. The Hubble Space Telescope is going to be looking at lots of the outer planets, uh, Jupiter, mm-hmm. Saturn, Uranus, Neptune. Uh, it mm. won't be able to look inwards, um, unfortunately, because... Um, it's, they're, they're too close to the sun, basically. Um, yeah, you've too got this bright. Massive, too,
0: too much. Too much heat. <laughs> you've got this massive that.
1: telescope that they are. They've built a tennis court sunshield to protect it from the light of not just the from the heat of not just the sun, but the Earth mm. and even the Moon, which is so bright.
0: Even the reflected light from these bodies is too yeah. much for it. Yeah. So yeah. it's only
1: going to be able to look at. But um, that means it's going to be looking at these gas giant planets, which is going to be really fascinating because infrared is really good for looking down into planet atmospheres so if you've got these thick atmospheres like jupiter saturn uranus neptune they all do um that's what it's going to be able to start picking apart it's going to be able to see some of these layers um
0: that's one of the things that all that excites me i i i find um one of the one of the branches of astronomy that i'm i find i'm particularly interested in is is um Uh, planetary science and particularly in planetary science is the is these gas giants what is under the visible surface of 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 jupiter what is Mm -hmm. it like what is under the visible surface of saturn it's just it you know that kind of thing i'm just so curious about that um and it's just i'm you know i'm i'm in in really keen anticipation of of what we'll find out
1: yeah it's whenever you because quite often you when you look at these planets, you realize they've got these layers where they have very romantic sounding things going on, like it rains diamonds and sapphires, the <laughs> winds blow with rubies. And then you actually think about what that would be like, and it's horrific. <laughs> yeah, pretty bad. Yeah. Um, you'd it's need a pretty like,
0: strong umbrella uh, to, yeah. to, to kind of visit that place, wouldn't you? Interestingly, um, Uranus, Uranus and Neptune um, are interesting targets as well. I'm really pleased to. That there has been some observation time allotted to to the to those ice giants because uh, we have such a low resolution view of them really don't we the, you know the only observations we have of them close up are thanks to the voyager flybys in the late 1980s and you know that's that's 3 decades ago um you know the kind of distant past nowadays in terms of the kind of technology and the and the capability of instruments so it's high time that we discovered we made you know we did some put in some more time observing those worlds mm-hmm.
1: yeah because um with with the planets you again have the problem of the earth's atmosphere um but this time it's not just uh, like removing the, the the light like it does with infrared it's moving the light um so uh, as it comes through the earth's atmosphere has a bit of a, a wobble to it something called seeing um it and that blurs the image of the these distant planets um, which is why Hubble uh, did spend some time looking at, at at Uranus and Neptune but it only had a 2.5 meter mirror. Um, it, it could still only detect so much on these planets um, and even though there was like projects that sort of looked at extended periods of time uh, which I think the JWST is going to carry on. It's not just sort of taking like one snapshot of um, these planets and then moving on and never t- returning. It's going to sort of take different pictures at different times and sort of keep track of the planets as they move on. Um, and that's, again, that's one of those things of if we can get Hubble doing that at the same time in the, the, the visual, visual light. Because uh, JWST does have some visual capability, but it's not its strong suit. Um, it's, it's, it's much more of an infrared thing. So if we can get those two together for a bit, that's going to be some really interesting results and some stuff that, because that, that's one of the things with the things that these big telescopes do is it's not necessarily just going and doing this one observation and that's done and that's that one project that's going on. It's creating this entire legacy of data that's open to everybody, because um, it's a NASA instrument and NASA has this policy that any data that, it, that its instruments takes will be open to everybody.
0: Now it's time for the stargazing tip of the month. The winter skies see the return of one of the most recognizable constellations, Orion the Hunter. The bright stars of Orion make it easy to find and are a great opportunity to teach younger astronomers about how to navigate the sky. First, locate the three bright stars in a row that form Orion's belt. You should then be able to see the four stars that mark the corners of a rectangle around the belt. The top two stars are called Bellatrix and Betelgeuse, marking Orion's shoulders. The bottom two stars are named Saiph and Rigel and mark his feet. Orion offers an easy way to see the difference in colors between stars. Rigel, on the bottom right of the constellation, is blue-white in color, while Betelgeuse, on the top left, is a distinct reddish-orange. This is because Betelgeuse is an older star heading towards the end of its life. It's run out of fuel and entered the red giant phase, where its outer layers cool and glow red. Meanwhile, Rigel is a massive star, burning its fuel very rapidly and getting white hot. If you fancy more of a challenge, then try to locate a line of stars hanging down off Orion's belt. This is the hunter's sword. Halfway down this sword, you may see that one of the stars looks a bit fuzzier than the rest. This is the Orion Nebula, also known as M42. If you have a pair of binoculars or a small telescope to hand, you should be able to see even more detail in this region. Though bear in mind, it won't look quite like the images you might have seen in the pages of Sky at Night magazine. Like all nebulae, these colours can only be pulled out by extensive image processing. To the eye, M42 looks like a pale, misty cloud, but don't let that put you off. There's nothing quite like being able to see a distant nebulae with your own eyes.
1: So that's it from us this month. Be sure to pick up our 200th issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine where we also hear from readers who have been with the magazine since issue one, look back over the greatest scientific breakthroughs and landmark astronomical events that have occurred in the last 200 issues, and preview the biggest missions and observing events to come in 2022. And that's not forgetting our regular sections that will help you unlock the wonders of the night sky, find the right equipment to observe it with, and discover the best things to see after dark this month. From all of us here at BBC Sky at Night magazine, goodbye.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy Podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Brittany Colley. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to Acast, iTunes or Spotify.